Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Welcome back, Lo-Fi Lectionary, uh, the Bible study podcast for the religiously burned out but spiritually curious. You bring the warheads, I'll bring the ice cream. Here we go. We're going to dig into uh, Luke chapter 3. It's a beautiful day here in Flagstaff, even though I'm inside. The sun is out. The clouds are uh, moving fast. Some reason, I never noticed it. Clouds, uh, since I moved to Flagstaff, I've never lived in a place where clouds move so fast, and it always blows my mind. Anyway, that's just a little insight into my life. I'm Kevin, and uh, let's dig into Luke 3. Here we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Etruria, and Trachonitis, that's a hard word, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. <laughs> that's where we're going to start. And oh, I'm so glad I read it that way the first time, because that's really how I think it should have sa- it should sound. I mean, it, you start off with, uh, I think it's this chapter starts off with a joke. Um, you know, it starts off with Luke, just, you know, it, it's a new introductory fr- phase to the next, uh, you know, portion of the book. And it's, it's listing off all the years of how long all these, these big leaders, religious leaders and emperors and, uh, rulers, um, and where they rule and where they're in power and the lands they control. And it ends with, um, you know, talk about the, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, these people who are where the, the spirit dwells. They're the highest religious authorities in Israel. And then the punchline, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Um, the word of God, the spirit of God is coming and it's going to do something important. And who does it go to? Not any of the big rulers, not even the high religious rulers, not the emperor who is in charge of the whole known world. It comes to John, son of Zechariah. And he's in the wilderness. Um, there was a, uh, a movie, kind of controversial movie, but uh, I, I saw it in college and I actually liked it. I got a lot out of it um, called The Last Temptation of Christ. And there's this one great story that um, from the first time I saw that movie, um, this line just lodged itself in my brain where uh, Jesus in the story is, is trying to figure out what, what, what God's path for him is. And he's talking to someone and uh, trying to figure, you know, he's asking questions, you know, what, what does God want of me? And the, the guy says, God of Israel is the God of the desert. You want to speak to him, you'll have to go to the desert. And that, that movie is controversial because it took some, uh, some liberties in telling the, the Jesus story um, away from at least the, the versions that we get, you know, written down in the Bible. So a lot of religious folk um, didn't like it. But, um, oh man, they nailed that. Because if you, if you read the whole Bible, um, you'll see that God seems to have a very particular connection wilderness. Um, whenever something's happening or brewing up in the wilderness, you know something's going to happen. So uh, Luke sets that up for us right here at the beginning. There's a guy named John, and he's not a ruler, and he's not a priest, but oh, the word of God is coming to him. He's in the wilderness. 
Um, and remember, as it's listed off all those rulers, remember that Jesus has already been identified in Luke as the Savior, like the real ruler, the real emperor, the real Lord, the real Messiah, Christ. So he's going to be in contrast to those. So again, we're getting that contrast theme. Coming to, the word of God is coming to John in the wilderness. Let's continue on in the story. They're talking about John again, remember? He went into all the region and around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. And then this is all a quote from the book of Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. For a guy with a little bit of a lisp like me, that sentence is hard. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. So um, this is our introduction to uh, to John. Um, it's just kind of a little description of what he's been up to. Uh, Luke identifies him as being um, within the prophetic tradition and, and speaks of him in the words of the prophet. And um, prophets, uh, their kind of job was to kind of stand against the power structures of the time and to kind of um, tell them what God thought of how they were doing, I guess. Um, and uh, it seems like John's role is to kind of, uh, he's out in the wilderness. So again, he's, it's, it is it is kind of presented more in contrast of everything else that's going on in the community. And uh, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So um, in case you didn't grow up super religious, uh, I'll try and unpack this just a little bit. Um, baptism is... Uh, you know, uh, connected with a lot of ancient religious practices that included water. So if you go way, 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 way back, uh, even before um, the time of uh, John and Jesus, excuse me, you get, uh, there a, a lot of um, religions used water as kind of a ritual cleansing, uh, kind of believing that there are some uh, transformative cleansing powers and properties about water. Um, you know, water gives life, water, stuff like that. So, um you would see in both Greek and in, uh, ancient Jewish tradition, um, water just being used as a, before you prepared for like a religious ritual or before you um, got ready to uh, go meet God or for God to be revealed or for God to do something in some way, you would go kind of cleanse yourself with water. Um, and so baptism, it sounds like um, at the time uh, was uh, basically John was, was using water in some sense. Um, you know, to, to wash people and proclaiming that that was what people needed to do um, to, uh, to prepare for something. Um, now, also, um, at the time, um, when people converted from, uh, when non-Jewish people converted to Judaism, um, they would have to go through the ritual of circumcision, and then afterwards, uh, they would uh, be baptized. So um, there's kind of a little bit of uh, context for us thinking about baptism in Luke as being a way for people to be cleansed and prepared for something. It's also a way for us to think about um, conversion or uh, people coming to a new decision or a new way of thinking, um, something like that. Um, what's interesting is we're going to see um, John's primary audience seems to be um, a mixture of people, but it's mostly two people in Israel, um, you know, all around the region, around the Jordan, and he's baptizing them, which could indicate that he's saying or the implication is, is that those people need to like convert, <laughs> like, which is, which is saying something about how John believes that they're uh, living out their, their religion. <laughs> um, so that's kind of interesting. Or it could just be that he's kind of simply preparing them for something. Cause a lot of the other language, you know, even in this verse from Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord, 
make the path straight, make the crooked, you know, straight, make the rough raised smooth. Every hills are going to be lowered and stuff like that. Um, so lots of preparation talk. Um, and then this word repentance, uh, for all of you Greek nerds out there, it's the word metanoia, um, which, uh, is, uh, I think literally means to, to change one's mind. Um, often it's used kind of in the context of not just changing one's mind about something small, but, um, of coming to a, a a new understanding of things that kind of changes the way you see most things or everything, or right? you see the world and the way you orient and, and, and live, live out your life in, in response to that. Um, so he's using baptism to help people repent and change their mind about things for the purpose of forgiveness of sins. Um, so there's lots of that going on. Um, and that's, um, John's way of preparing people for whatever's coming next. So it's, it's going to be kind of interesting. Um, now, when we talk about preparation, and since we've already, uh, Luke has already brought up uh, political leaders and lots of uh, Roman context and things like that, um, I'm just going to quickly note here that um, whenever um, a royal person or um, a, uh, a victor from battle or something like that was traveling and was going to come through your town, your town was to prepare for that person. They called this preparation um, Advent which uh, if you've hung around churches, uh, you know that we use that word uh, when we get ready to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate the arrival of, um, you know, Emperor Jesus. Um, so uh, um, John is kind of the person kind of going forward and preparing for the, helping people prepare for the advent of whatever he sees is going to come next. Um, and uh, when ancient people, um, you know, went through the advent process, if someone big had just, uh, you know, a military general or um, the emperor himself or something like that was going to come to your town, you all got ready. So you, um, you decorated things, you prepared uh, the religious sites, you prepared any um, a space for them to be. Um, you even went so far as to clean the streets and stuff like that. And so, um, so uh, this the language of Isaiah being adopted for that. Um, in a sense, you know, with, with mountains and hill being made low and valleys being filled and crooked made straight and rough ways made smooth um, because the salvation of God is coming and it says all of flesh. So again, themes of global, all people, stuff like that popping up in Luke all over the place. It's crazy. Hopefully you're not getting tired of it. <laughs> so, um, so let's go on and see what John does. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who ordered you to flee to the wrath to come? <laughs> Oh, man, it doesn't get better than that. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Oh, my goodness. Woo! So literally fiery language. Um, <laughs> coming from John, um, uh, ne ne next time you meet someone or next time someone comes over to your house or something like that, just go ahead and take a cue from John. Start out with that. You brood of vipers! <laughs> like imagine, um, you know, imagine if, if, if you work at a school or if you're part of a religious community or something like that. What if that was your first word to everybody? You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee for the wrath to come? Um... My goodness. Uh, so John coming on strong from the beginning. Um, people are coming out to, uh, to part of the ceremony, uh, to, to signify the forgiveness of their sins, to, to show that they've maybe had a change of mind, um, to be cleansed in a sense. 
And, uh, and this is how John responds to the crowds that come out to be baptized by them. Woo! Um, I, I just think that kind of is what it is. Um, a uh, couple, couple notes, uh, the children of Abraham line, um, you know, those would be Israelites. Abraham was kind of the forefather of, of everyone from Israel, um, of the Hebrew people. And what John is, uh, not, yeah, but John, what John is kind of, um, getting them on here is, um, you know, if, if you think you have a special status in the world or with God, um, because you're an ancestor of Abraham, because you're part of the, 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 the uh, you know, this community in Israel that he's part of, um, be careful because that maybe that doesn't make you so special. God is able from stones to raise up more of you. So, um, um, and he's not really hammering on them to say that you aren't uh, special or God is interested in you. It's, it's actually um, going along with the themes of Luke. It's just that God is interested you know, in, in everybody. Um, there is no stratification going on. So uh, interesting stuff. Um Let's see. Uh, let's 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 continue on. It 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 it, it gets even. It, it continues to be good. And the crowds asked him, "What then should we do?" In reply, he said to them, "Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise." Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, "Teacher, what should we do?" He said to them, "Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you." Soldiers also asked him. And we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Um, huh. <laughs> so um, people have come. They want to repent, uh, which, um, you know, they want to change their minds. They want to they be forgiven of their sins and things like that. And then John has these kind of harsh greeting, you know, this, this harsh word for them, you know, you brood of vipers, so much fun to say. Um, and then they ask, okay, like, like I see that, you know, according to your words, the ax is lying at the root of the trees, you know, and, and this is dangerous business, you know, like God wants us to prepare for something big and, and we want to, you know, it's, it's, it's important and it's scary. Um, so they ask him, what, what should we do? And it's really interesting to see what John's response is. Um, you know, his response of, of how does religion work and what's the right religious move for these people um, for first is to, how do you get ready for God? Take care of poor people. If you have two coats and someone doesn't have one, you need to give them one. Someone you know doesn't have food and you do, you need to share. Isn't that interesting? Um... And then it says, even tax collectors. So tax collectors, just a little bit of history um, back then, were um, traditionally when um, Roman folks conquered an area, they would hire local people to be tax collectors um, to send money back to Rome. Um, so someone from your community would come and knock on your door one day and they would say, hi, I'm working for the uh, our enemies, the invaders that came over and took over our town or our country, and uh, you owe me a bunch of money to send to support them. So... Odds are you did not like this person. Um, they were kind of traitorous in that way. And moreover, um, tax collectors, if this was their job, then to survive and be paid um, would have to collect extra taxes from you that they didn't send to Rome. Uh, so that way they could, you know, eat and feed their families and stuff like that, which meant that since they were backed up by Rome, which was a big, scary uh, 
empire that just took over your land um, meant that they kind of had protection and backing from the Roman officials so they could charge you almost as much as they wanted, basically, and you would have to pay them. Um, so tax collectors are often um, seen as, as not good folks because they could not just take your money and send it to the invading empire, but they could take extra and become rich off of you being a victim of the empire. And they were uh, generally a person from your community. So um, you probably did not like these folks. So even tax collectors wanted to repent and change their minds. And what's John's message to them? Uh, don't take any extra money from people. And then um, further out, soldiers. So like the invading army, like these foreign people that had come in and maybe, um, you know, enforced with violence um, the rule of the empire in your country and in your community wanted to repent. And what's John's response to them? Don't extort money from anybody by false accusation or threats and be satisfied with your wages. Um, I'm not exactly 100% on this, but it almost looks like there's a progression of what the response is by how John uh, tells these people what the right move and how do they get ready for God to come in and start doing some amazing work of salvation. Um, it seems like regular people actually have the, the most difficult task. Like the regular Israelite folks who come to him, they have to share everything they have. Whereas for tax collectors, the people who you would figure have to make the most change in their lives to like get right and be prepared for God, it's just don't cheat people. And then soldiers, who you figure, you know, if they're foreigners especially, might have the most work to do to get ready for God. It's just like, don't be a horrible person that goes around and hurts other people. Like that's, I, I don't know. I, I'm still developing that idea, but it's, it's present in the story at least. Um, so let's continue on and see what happens next. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. I, uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to all the people. <laughs> good news. Doesn't sound so good, at least right there. Um, but Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them by all by shutting John up in prison. So we're, let's pause there real quick. Um, so there's some, uh, some expectations, some rumors, some things going on about who the Messiah is. People are kind of waiting for the Messiah, for their king, for the savior. And John's getting kind of a following and he's talking really um, big and uh, it seems like the, the word of God is with him. So people are like, maybe, maybe he's the Messiah. So Luke is cluing us into this idea that, uh, that yeah, people are, are expecting this and are looking for the Messiah. Um, and they think it might be John. And John kind of, John just denies it. It's not me. I'm just here to prepare for someone else who's coming. Um, and then he gives more fiery language. Um, there's kind of two ways to take this image. Um, you know, with the whole... Uh, you know, the wheat is in the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
um, you could read this um, as God is going to separate, you know, something, this Messiah is going to come and separate good people from bad people and the bad people are going to be burned. Or um, you could actually say, because, you know, the wheat is one whole unit, but there's two parts to it. There's the, the wheat, the actual seed and the chaff, like maybe just like the bad things, like people are coming and asking for repentance and forgiveness. Like they're trying to change their minds and, and live differently and give up some bad things. Um, God is going to burn the bad things with unquenchable fire. You can read it either of two ways. Um, um, and John the Baptist then kind of lays out what he thinks the mission and the work of the Messiah, who he's waiting for as well, is going to be. And it's going to be to baptize people with the Holy Spirit and fire. <laughs> I mean, the, the primary image John has of the Messiah is that it's a person with a winnowing fork and a threshing floor who works with unquenchable fire. Um, there's almost a certain kind of danger and a certain kind of violence um, to the work of the Messiah. Um, at least that's what John talks about. Um, and so the, the text says, you know, he proclaimed the good news to the people, um, but maybe it's not so good news for some people. Um, this, this is where some tension builds in the story of um, what is the Messiah actually going to do and what's it going to be like and what should people do in response? People are trying to figure this out. Um, and uh, it seems like most people um, are kind of on board with John. Um, you know, he's, he's gaining a following and stuff like that. And people are coming to him to ask for questions and seek direction and things like that. Um, except for um, Herod. Uh, Herod was the, the ruler at Israel at the time. Um, there's some, uh, some business that went on with his brother's wife that uh, transgressed um, some, some rules and, and behavioral ideals and stuff like that for people. Um, and it seems like John um, challenged him on it. You know, he's this prophetic figure. He speaks, you know, uh, towards and against kind of the power structure um, when they're not uh, doing things right. And uh, Herod has responded not by asking, what should I do? Like the rest of the people, his response is, let's get rid of this guy. They shut him up in prison. Um, so it, uh, right here, we have the first instance of someone, uh, as God has kind of already laid down in the first two chapters of Luke and stuff like that, as it's been, Luke is telling the story about God doing something big and wanting to bring favor to all people, but there's going to be a rising and there's going to be a falling and there's going to be, you know, some people are opposed to it and some people who are along with it. And here, um, at least as John the Baptist is trying to prepare the way for the Messiah, uh, we have this first, uh, person who is just opposing it out. Um, and this is, again, every time we see a ruler doing something or someone in power doing something, it's almost always in contrast to uh, Jesus, who is being presented in the book of Luke as the new king, the new savior, the new emperor. Um, and it seems like the, if Jesus is the real ruler, the real Herod, um, you know, the real king, um, the good news is going to be a political statement that lies in conflict with the way powerful people who are trying to oppose it are living. Um, so again, uh, we also get the theme of in the book of Luke, um, John the Baptist, he's the word of God is with him and he's trying to prepare the way for the Messiah, but doing the right thing has left him vulnerable. Now he's in jail. Um, so again, that theme continues on. Let's see what happens next. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. 
He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathot, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Jani, son of Joseph, son of Matthias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Maath, son of Matthias, son of Simeon, son of Josek, son of Jodah, son of Joanan, son of Rissa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi. All right, I'm going to stop here and just apologize to any um, of my listeners who uh, either know Hebrew or are Hebrew or Jewish. I am so sorry. I'm going to butcher so many of these names, but pressing on with courage. Son of Adi, son of Kosim, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Elizer, son of Joram, son of Mathot, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Meleah, son of Mena, son of Mathatha, son of, uh, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salah, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Admin, son of Arni, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Sarug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of uh, Canaan, son of Arphaxad, that's a good one, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalaliel, that's a great one too, son of Canaan, son of Annas, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. (sighs) That was a lot. Um, So here's the last part of the chapter. Um, So John has kind of set the stage and people are being baptized. And then finally we see adult Jesus. And um, the only action that Jesus has here in the story is, is a passive one. He's been baptized. So um, it's still um, Luke's process of setting the stage. Uh, but Jesus comes and he gets baptized. Um, he gets uh, cleansed. He gets prepared for something to come. And what happens? Uh, we get this interaction. It says the Holy Spirit descended upon him, bodily form like a dove. And then you hear the voice of um, from heaven um, saying, you are my son. So it's the voice of, of God, but God, a, a father talking to his son. Um, again, um, we don't get everything explained to us nuts and bolts about how um, and in what way Jesus is the son of God. Um you know, and stuff like that. Yet Christians will continue to debate that for a long time. But um, but here we get an interesting picture where the Father is talking and Jesus is being baptized and the Holy Spirit, who seems to be different than those two also, um, are all appearing, interacting in the same place. Um, it's language that will later become Trinitarian. Um you know, and it's a scene that will become important for um, Christians as they develop the idea of the Trinity, but there's no Trinitarian theology um, 
in, in that formalized way, at least yet. But here in the book of Luke, he paints us a picture um, with words where Jesus is the son and there's the father's voice and the Holy Spirit um, also all in the same place. And what does the father say? You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Um, it's Jesus hasn't started acting yet, but as Jesus is growing, as, as we saw in the last chapter, growing in wisdom, growing in knowledge, growing in favor with God, we have this one last moment before he really starts uh, his action. Um, because the next sentence is Jesus was 30 years old when he began his work. So the last thing that happens before that action really starts happening with Jesus is that he receives his identity from God, not just as his son, but as a beloved son whom God is well pleased. So before all of his teaching and all of his work that Jesus is known for kind of amongst us today, before any of that happens, there's this blessing, this bestowing of favor and love, voice of the Father on Jesus the Son. Again, continuing the theme that with Luke, everything begins with Jesus. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, and then we get this long, long, long list of uh, that I just destroyed <laughs> of, that traces Jesus's lineage. Um, and this was kind of a common practice um, with historical biographers of the time and stuff like that. But, um, you know, we have to kind of consider what's Luke up to while he's doing it. Is he just doing it for formality? Possibly. But there may be um, some things about the story itself that, um, that uh, of reasons that he included um, this list of his, of his lineage. I mean, Jesus has just been identified by God as his son, the beloved. Um, but now he's identified also by his, the trace tracing of his lineage, of his human lineage, um, that we see goes son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, um, all the way across. And uh, it does a couple things along the process. It traces his lineage as, as kind of being revealed as a royal lineage. So we've heard already that um, Joseph and Mary have some ties to the priestly class and ties to, um, to David, who is kind of the most popular king from the Old Testament. And uh, as people kind of expected the Messiah, they would read back in their scriptures and they would read some verses as kind of implying that if a Messiah was to come, um, that they would come in the royal line of David. What's interesting is that, yes, um, this, this royal lineage is traced, but so far it's traced down to um, not like someone who's in power right now, but to this peasant family. <laughs> um, so Luke does trace his lineage uh, possibly to, you know, reveal to his audience, yes, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for coming from the line of David, because this was probably a really big deal to a lot of them. Um, it, it's kind of because we're kind of democratic and we don't really care too much what your ancestral line is in some ways today, but we just have a different kind of value system than them. So it would have been a big deal to a lot of people then. Um, and then Luke goes not only to include David as the king, but also a number of other, uh, you know, famous folks from the Old Testament, um, traces it back to Abraham. So Jesus is directly descended, Luke is pointing out, from the person who started, you know, the community of Israel. All of our people trace back to Abraham. And then even beyond that, through a bunch of the other Old Testament folks, um, you know, Noah um, is in there. Um, and then we get, um, traces all the way back even past that, who says, son of Adam, son of God, um, which is really uh, kind of interesting. Um, Luke is going on, 
is showing that, you know, Jesus doesn't go all the way back to, to, to David just because, you know, he's a king and that's the only reason he's important. He goes back all the way to the beginning of creation. Um, it's a claiming that this event that's going to happen and all the stuff that Jesus is going to do is not just uh, important to Israel, but it's kind of cosmic on that level. Um, it goes all the way back to uh, everybody. Um, you know, if we could all trace our human lineage back, you know, we would all, you know, in the framework of, uh, you know, the book of Luke, all trace ourselves back to Adam and Jesus is one of us, um, you know, son of Adam, son of God. Um, what's going to happen and what has been happening is not just for Israel, but for everyone. And so there's this theme going on in, in Luke uh, 3 of the identity of who Jesus is. And um, everyone um, has kind of identified him as being, you know, the Christ, the Messiah so far. Um, you know, Elizabeth does, uh, angels do, Simeon does, Anna does, um, the Holy Spirit does, you know, and God does now here. Um, you know, shepherds, you know, identify him, you know, as the king is the Messiah. Um, and everyone's kind of been building, there's, there's all these people in those, this loose community of people who are kind of seeing it right and are waiting and are eager to see what's going to happen. But this is the turning point in the story, because just as we saw happening between Herod and John, pretty soon as Jesus steps out and starts his work, um, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to really struggle to identify just who Jesus is, what he's up to, what side they want to be on, and if they're happy about what he's doing or if they're not happy about what he's doing. So um, here at the close of Luke 3, it's really the end of the scene being set for, for Jesus. We've heard a lot about him and we've seen things happen to him, but now we're going to actually start to see what he does. Um, and you're going to have to continue on either on your own or you can keep listening to the Lo-Fi Lectionary to see what happens next. So um, let's go on to our three questions. All right, here we go. Um, so question number one, or our lo-fi lectionary questions, at least number one, uh, what is God like in Luke three? Um, again, we kind of see that God is, is, as I said in the last episode, God kind of is the most powerful, but the least interested in power. Like he's constantly being contrasted to all the Kings and rulers of the time who, um, are either indifferent to what's going on or interested in their own power or actually stand in opposition to what God and the people who kind of are with God, full of the spirit, full of the word of God are doing in the community. Um, God kind of keeps picking uh, non-powerful people, people on the outskirts, people in the wilderness, you know, stuff like that, um, to be like kind of his instruments and his people and his representatives, um, you know, and it's just kind of interesting. So again, we get this, this kind of uh, contrast um, between different types of people, people at different places in society, uh, contrast between the wilderness and the temple. Um, you know, the temple is there and he, you know, God, you know, is certainly involved there and that's where all the center of the religious life. But, um, in Luke three, he's also the God of the desert. Um, we also see a couple of things. It seems like God really cares about how people treat others and whether or not their society is just. And the justice is based on not a concept of like fairness or, or merit or anything like that, that we kind of sometimes fudge it with a little bit. It seems to be that the idea of God's justice, at least through the, the, the words of John the Baptist in this chapter, are that poor people have food if anyone has food. If anyone has clothes, that poor people who need clothes get clothes, and that people aren't cheated, and that people aren't victimized. Um, it's kind of interesting just to note um, 
how um, obsessed with people being treated well and that people um, who are in need, getting what they need, that God is. And it really comes through here um, in week three. Just people are asking me, like, what do we do to prepare for God coming? Well, you, you start caring for poor people. <laughs> um, and then again, um, lastly, uh, what is God like? He loves uh, the son. Um, and uh, you are my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. And it seems like um, this love, you know, in, in this story in Luke 3 is really centered on Jesus. Um, but we've also seen already in the first couple of chapters that God's love and favor seems to go out to, to everybody. And that's what God is like here uh, in Luke 3 as well. Um, that's interesting. Question two, what are people like? Um, well, there's kind of this lesson uh, that we get again in Luke 3 that uh, people often uh, have this process of stratification to, to either see other people um, either as below them or above them. And here John the Baptist just are, uh, really confronts that. You know, you, you think you're special because you're children of Abraham. You think you're special because you're religious. Um, you're not. <laughs> um, you know, um, in fact, uh, it seems to be uh, in this chapter, in the words of John, um, if you are, and if you're, if, if, if you're one of the people in this community, and if you want to be a part of what God is doing, it actually means that you have more responsibility for other people, to take care of others. Um, and if you want to be ready to make way for God to, to, uh, to move and to be here um, for salvation to come for all flesh, um, you have the responsibility of making sure poor people get what they need. Um, and so it's this process of the people who are going to do well with God in Luke 3 are the people who are willing to recognize their privilege and let it go. You have extra clothes if you have extra food. If you're in a position of or power over others to extort them or hurt them, you got to stop doing that. Um, you need to repent. Um, and again, uh, just this word repent of this idea of changing the your mind, um, but not just changing your mind, but kind of changing in your mind a way that will allow you to be transformed and to then go out and there's direct calls um, that if you change your mind about things, it has to affect the way that you live in the world and treat people and stuff like that. So changing your mind transforms the way you see the world and therefore is a part of transforming the world itself. If you want to hear more about this, um, I have a friend uh, named John Chafee, um, last name C-H-A-F-F-E-E, in case you are curious. He has a podcast called Ambushed that you can find. He has a whole uh, podcast episode on that word metanoia, that means repentance or that gets translated as repentance. He explains it a lot better than I do. Plus, he's a really cool guy. So go listen to his uh, podcast. Uh, it's, again, it's called Ambushed. You can find it on, on uh, iTunes. But um, but yeah, and, uh, and in the context of talking about how, you know, if you have privilege and power, you have to give it up or you have to share it or you have to go and change the world. Um, this is in stark contrast to, in Luke 3, the character of Herod, who uh, doesn't want to give that up. And the minute he's criticized for something that he does, he's going to stand in the way of what God is doing. And he actually throws uh, John the Baptist in jail. Um, so we, we, we kind of have our first big villain of the story. Um, and that's kind of interesting to see. Um, there's two different kinds of people and some of them kind of go are, go along and celebrate what God is up to in the, in the midst of the story. And some of them don't. And uh, what puts people on the outside? Well, they don't want to give up their power and their privilege.
on the kitchen episode, we'll dig into I think that that might be a good story for us today. But here we go. Question three. Why would Christians keep Luke 3 around? Why do we continue to read it, to discuss it, to, to debate it? Um, why um, over you know now a couple thousand years um, has the story been a part of their tradition? Um, I think it would teach them um, the other-centric quality of living out Christian faith. Um, it's Luke 3, uh, John the Baptist really rails on this idea of if you're going to go along with what God is doing in the world, you have to be focused on caring for others. It's not about you. Um, it is about you in the sense that you are you receive God's favor and that God loves you and stuff like that. And that way you are very special. But if you are special, everyone is special because God has shown decided to pour his favor out on everybody. So if there's people that don't have food, you need to go feed them. Um, I, I would imagine Christians have kept the story around because it reminds them of their mission to go out and to care for others. And that this is something that God is very interested in is at the heart of what God wants them to be doing. Um, this story kind of also uh, maybe has taught Christians for a long time to have a little bit of a healthy um, distrust um, regarding uh, power and the people that use it. <laughs> um, and that might even be themselves if they're in power or and and if they're seeking power to maybe have some healthy um, introspection about what they're up to and how they're going to use it and things like that. So we have this list of emperors and people at the beginning, and then we have we see how one of them lives out in, in opposition to John, uh, the character of Herod. Um, and so Christians maybe tell the story to themselves repeatedly over time of like, yep, there's going to be some people who are going after power and are going to actually stand against good things in the world. Or if we find ourselves in power, we need to make sure that we are not, we not find ourselves going against what God would want to be have, having happen in the world. Um, and how do we make sure that we're, all, we're using our power well? Well, our, do poor people have food? <laughs> It's maybe a, a really important question that they've challenged themselves with um, through Luke 3 over the last uh, thousand years. Um, and then maybe they just keep these, keep the story around and they kind of like it and read it and tell, the, tell it to themselves because in the story, we really get a they really get um, kind of a clear message about the identity of Jesus. Um, that John is like, I'm not the one you're waiting for, but you should be waiting for somebody and they're coming soon. And then boom, here you go. Um, the voice from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Um, and then the tracing of his heritage. Yes, this is the person of the line of David, this person who goes all the way back to the to Adam and to God himself, you know, and at the beginning of creation. This is the person that everyone has been waiting for. According to Luke, you can disagree with that, but according to Luke, like he's setting that table um, and he's setting the story in that way. And um, maybe uh, this is because the story continues to be an important part of Christian heritage because simply the fact that it, it contains that part of the story of being like, we kind of hang on to this. Um, so you imagine um, Luke's audience kind of reading this um, and if they've ever doubted whether or not they've been on the right track or if they've doubted um, whether or not the story they've come to buy about this Jesus person is real or whatever, maybe this would provide them some comfort of being like, no. We know that his heritage, we were, you know, we, we know the story of God, even it's you know, God speaking from the heavens and the Holy Spirit coming upon him and identifying this person um, as God themselves. And so, yeah, it, it maybe has, our lives have been difficult and we've experienced tragedy, but we think we're right on this. And um, 
you know, and even in the midst of our pain and tragedy, maybe the story Luke is writing them to be a reminder that it's need to continue to take care of those among you who need help. Um, even in the midst of, um, you know, the destruction of the temple, you know, this, this national um, cultural horror story. Um, that's kind of interesting. So where do we go from here? We go into Luke four. And again, um, this stage is set. This is the big moment where this Messiah, this savior, this King, uh, that we've heard about this little boy has, uh, that was born, you know, and wrapped in cloths has now grown wise and grown in favor and is, you know, and it's, it's been identified that he's the Messiah. Let's see what happens when he steps out onto the scene. Um, so I hope that you'll join me for uh, our next episode of the uh, Lo-Fi Lectionary, Luke 4. Should be fun. Well, that's the end of episode zero, but don't go yet. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review subscribe and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Lectionary and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net. And that's lofi with no dash. So L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again. So at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.